Have you ever just been roped into a good courtroom mystery? You know how it goes, right? The prosecution will, pre- will present their side of the argument, their case against the defendant. And as you're hearing their story and as you're seeing this evidence, you're convinced that guy's guilty. But then the defense gets their turn, and as they kind of reinterpret the evidence and they present new evidence and they give you some kind of alternative story, well, sometimes you're wondering, is the guy guilty or is he innocent? You're not really sure, and so you're left with these questions. What is the truth? And if that guy's not guilty, well, then who did it? You know, the courtroom drama that captured the attention of America, maybe more so than any other drama, was the O.J. Simpson trial. It was dubbed the trial of the century. Now, I know today everyone has strong opinions on whether he was innocent or guilty, but at least legally, there's a bit of ambiguity there. You know, in the criminal trial, he was found innocent. However, in the civil trial, he was found responsible. So there's a bit of ambiguity. As we make our way through studying the minor prophets, one of the things we want to do is try to understand the context. When were these authors writing? What, who was king? What was happening? Because understanding the context gives us a lot of insight as to, as to the meaning of these books. And for most of the minor prophets, we can answer those questions really well. But for two of the twelve, well, we're left with this sense of ambiguity. Those two... Obadiah and Joel, O.J., pre-exilic, post-exilic, who was king, innocent, guilty, O.J., Obadiah, Joel, we just don't know. That's how I kind of keep it all straight in my head. So with the prophet Joel especially, there's a lot of ambiguity. Like Obadiah, there are 12 other Joels mentioned in the scripture, and like Obadiah, this Joel probably wasn't any one of those. This Joel, he tells us that his father's name was Pethuel, so it doesn't really match up with any of the other Joels in scripture, and we don't really know anything about him other than his dad's name. However, with Obadiah, you at least had this rich backstory. There was Jacob and Esau, and we talked through it last week, and how these two twin brothers became mighty nations, nations at odds with this rivalry against each other. With Joel, there's no rich backstory like that. Setting the context is very, very difficult. With Obadiah, there's this specific sin that was mentioned. We see Edom's pride. And because of Edom's pride, that led to unforgiveness. It resulted in violence. Oh, the sin is very clear. In Joel, well, there's no specific sin mentioned. There's this judgment, but there's no sin. There's just a lot of ambiguity, a lot of things we don't know. But the thing about it is, those aren't necessarily the questions we're always wanting the answers to. They're helpful in getting the answers we want, but what we really want to know is what does this book mean? I mean, how, how does this book make any difference in my life? What am I supposed to do with the message of the prophet Joel? And Joel, well, he gives us enough to know that. It's actually a very rich book. But before we get to all that, you should know that Joel did write to the southern kingdom Judah. We do know this. He uses this term Zion several times throughout his prophecy. And Zion, well, that's a synonym for Jerusalem. Oftentimes in poetic literature and prophets are 
primarily poetic, you'll use the term Zion instead of Jerusalem. And that term Zion, it also is usually accompanied with this message of hope. Jerusalem, you find that term primarily in the historical narratives, where it's just talking about the, the place Jerusalem. Zion ah, just has this ring to it. And so the prophets and the poets, they like to use that term. And that's what Joel does. He primarily uses the term Zion. So Joel does use this term Zion a lot because Joel, well, it is a book of hope. He's going to alternate between these pronouncements of judgment and these oracles of hope. We'll see that as we make our way through this short book, only three chapters long. We'll get to begin this morning. The thing about Joel is, an interesting thing is, without any kind of historical event to kind of ground Joel in, it seems as if Joel almost kind of floats above time. You know, as the preachers of the New Testament begin to preach, uh, Peter and Paul, they're often going to reference Joel. and They're, they're each going to use him as they're speaking and they're communicating. There's something about Joel, the way he writes, it just kind of gets into your heart and it sticks into your mind. So they're verses that you remember, they're images that just, they just get stuck in your mind because he paints these vivid, vivid images that you can just identify with and you just, they keep coming up. So as we make our way through the prophet, we'll see what images he paints in our minds, what kind of messages to just kind of tug at our hearts because the message of Joel, the prophecy of Joel, it has a way of doing that. Let's go ahead and get started. I want you to hear this imagery. We'll begin with Joel chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. Joel 1, 1 through 12. The prophet writes, The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders, give ear, all the inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell it to your children, and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off the bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers. For the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished." The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. So Joel, as he starts, he just kind of launches right into this judgment that's coming. He talks about this day of the Lord, and it is a locust plague. And it's interesting, Joel doesn't 
give any specific sin. He doesn't point to any one thing and say, because you've done this, here comes the locust. Uh, if he did, we'd probably be spending all of our time looking at that sin and asking ourselves, are we doing this and kind of interpreting it through that lens. But he doesn't do that. Yeah, he calls them drunkards and you drinkers of wine. But what he's really getting at there, understanding the context, is he's saying you are an insensitive people. You, you, you are just left cold and heartless and carefree. You are spiritually insensitive to your sin. You lack all feeling. See, it's not just any one sin specifically that Joel's pointing to. It's that the people are insensitive to all sin. They have lost all sensitivity. The primary issue that Joel is dealing with is in his prophecy is that God's people are insensitive to sin. And his message to Judah, to the southern kingdom, and now to us is sensitize your heart. Sensitize your heart. If you want to prevail through God's judgment into a place of blessing, then you sensitize your heart. Now, when you think of Joel, the image that ought to come to mind is this image of a locust plague. I mean, it is a terrible, nasty locust plague. And he's talking about a locust plague that is going to be devastating, so devastating that you'll tell their, your kids and their, your kids will tell their kids and their kids will tell their kids. It just goes on and on. It keeps getting passed on because it is the event of the day. Now, when we think about the events of our day, we might think of the O.J. Simpson trial and kind of pass that on. More likely, though, we would think of an event like 9-11 and how we would tell our kids and their kids will tell their kids. And that's just how it goes. It's, it's this significant event. And Joel's saying this locust plague is going to be like one of those where you just keep on telling and you keep on passing it through the generations that this happened. Now, when we talk about locust plagues, there's still locust plagues today. You can Google locust plague videos and you'll see just how nasty and how devastating these, pla these plagues can be, just how much devastation they can inflict. Now, people who stay up late at night and study locusts, and yes, there are people who do this, they tell us that a locust can eat its weight every single day that it goes out and it eats green vegetation its weight every single day now that might not seem like much to you i mean it's just a little small insect i mean how much can that really weigh but the people who study locusts they tell us that these locust swarms when just a swarm comes through well, there are so many of them that they can eat five fifty thousand tons per day. 50,000 tons of green vegetation per day because these swarms, they're equivalent to like multiple football fields wide, several miles deep. The population of these lo locust swarms, well, it's about 10 times the human population of the earth. That's how incredibly massive these swarms are and the damage they can inflict. I mean, this is what Joel's talking about. 50,000 tons of green vegetation just disappearing overnight and then the same thing happening again the next day. I mean, you can imagine just the damage that's impacted, that's inflicted because of this and you don't get over that very quickly. I mean, this is going to take years to rebuild, generations to repair the devastation that they, they can inflict. 
Now, locust plagues, they're most common in East Africa, places like Egypt, Morocco. You can even find them sometimes occasionally in Australia. They typically don't make it up to Israel. And people who study it, they look, they say, well, you know, it's the wind patterns and everything. Because of the wind patterns, you don't really get up there. And it's the weather system, you know, the weather climate. It's not as profitable for locusts to be up there. And their breeding habits wouldn't really lead to swarms of locusts in Israel. But what the prophet is getting at here is he's letting us know that the thing that keeps the locusts from Israel is God himself. That God is the one who protects Israel and he protects them from typically invading Israel. See, we have to come to this place where we interpret creation theologically. Not, Not just every other way, but theologically. You know, we'll say, hey, forest fires, well, they happen because forest fires happen. Hurricanes happen because hurricanes happen. But as we study the scriptures, we see that, hey, God, he causes the rain to drop and he prevents the rain from dropping. He causes the locusts to swarm and he holds the locusts back. Now, if you get some Christian who says, well, this plague happened because of this or it's God's doing, Well, that guy's looked at as a fanatic, right? You plast him all over TV and you make a meme about him on Facebook. But there is a sense where we need to step back and we need to interpret creation theologically, understanding that God is sovereign over all creation. And Joel, he wants everyone to pay attention to this locust plague. I mean, this locust plague is God's doing. And in verse 2, he says, hear this, elders, you listen up, everyone in the land. See, it's important to note that Joel, he is writing poetically, and so he's using Hebrew parallelism here. And when he says, hey, listen all you elders, the elders are representative of the people. And so the second line is just clarifying what he means in the first line. I want everybody to listen to this. Everybody needs to take note of this. This judgment will affect everyone and everyone needs to know about it. Everyone needs to know the proper response to it. No one in Judah will be spared from this coming locust destruction. And so as Joel describes this plague, he says uh, the ESV that I've read that I just read, you see the cutting locusts and the swarming locusts and the hopping locusts and the destroying locusts and you have all these different kinds of locusts. Except when you read other translations, you might not see those four same adjectives. You'll see different adjectives. It's it's really best to understand these adjectives. They're very difficult to translate. They're most likely synonyms. And what the prophet is saying is, hey, these locusts are bad. They are nasty. And just when you get through one wave, well, there's another wave that's equally bad. And they're coming next. You, You have four swarms of locusts. I mean, you just imagine That if you have a hurricane, you know, you say, okay, once a year, well, things happen, you know, it's a hurricane. You get one hurricane, a week later, you get another hurricane, and a week later, you get another hurricane, a week later, you get another hurricane. I mean, you start to see that add up. You say, this is not natural. This just doesn't happen. We've got to pay attention to this. What's going on here? This is what Joel's saying. You got locust plague after locust plague after locust plague after locust plague. You get the first one, and it comes, and it just devastates all your grain harvest. I mean, it just takes it all out. And then you think, well, there's still enough time in the season. Let me go out, let me plant some more. Maybe some of it didn't have time to germinate yet. And so it begins to germinate. And then right as you're ready again, what happens? Another swarm just repeats and it eats everything up again. 
And then the season's gone. Well, at least I still have the fruit trees. I mean, they, they haven't budded yet. At least we have those. And then what does Joel say? Oh, there's another swarm coming and all the buds, all the fruit trees are gone. There's nothing left. You say, well, at least I'll be okay for next year. I mean, everything can come back. And then what happens? Well, another swarm comes and it just chews out all the bark and you take away the bark from the tree. What happens? You lose the whole tree. And those olive trees in those days, when you plant a new one, it would take at least five years before that tree is producing anything. This is devastation that's going to last and leave an impact for a long, long time. It's brutal what's coming to Judah. And Joel wants to make sure that everyone is aware of it. And so Joel says, you spiritually insensitive people, you need to wake up and you need to repent. Because this plague that's happening, it's a wake-up call to you. To wake up and repent and to look at your sin. Look at, look at the way you're living. Look at the choices that you're making. Wake up and repent. And then you get to chapter 2. And as you read chapter 2, it's almost a repeat of chapter 1. I, I want you to hear the first 17 verses of chapter 2. But I want you to listen to how similar the language is to chapter 1. Just keep chapter 1 in mind as we look at the first 17 verses of chapter 2. Joel writes, Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, it is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people, their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run, as with the rumbling of chariots. They leap on the tops of the mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire, devouring the stubble like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall. They march each his own way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up on, into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The or the Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, 
where is their God? Joel is describing in chapter 2 at the beginning what sounds like another locust plague. But then he goes to this place and you're saying, well, this is not just another locust plague. I mean, what he's saying, they're going to look like horses. The ground will quake as they approach. The moon and the sun will be darkened. The stars will stop shining. I mean, what kind of locust plague is this? And so what is he talking about? See, sometimes when we try to make sense of the prophets, we get confused because they write using this poetry and it can be challenging. And the way they see events, we, we don't always see when they are shifting from one event to the next. See, they're always writing about stuff. They're, they're either telling the truth. I mean, prophecy simply means truth-telling. And so they're telling the truth about what's happening now, about what's going to happen in a little bit, or what's going to happen a long ways off. Now, have you ever been driving, like, and approaching a mountain range, like a big mountain range, and you see all these mountain peaks? And you see the first one, and then you see another peak, and you see another peak, and you see another peak. And when you're in your car, like, a, a good ways off, all the peaks look really close together. They look like just one right after another. But then once you get up to the peaks, I mean, once you're actually there, you realize, well, this peak, it's like hundreds of miles from the next peak. I mean, there's a long way off. There's this big gap here. But from a distance, it all looks kind of right together. See, the prophets, they write in this way. They'll write and they'll talk about one event. And they'll say, this event, it looks really similar to this event even though this event is really a long ways off. There's this great distance between the two. So Isaiah, he'll write about this coming king, Hezekiah, the greatest king of Judah, the greatest king that Israel had really besides King David. And so he'll prophesy Hezekiah's coming kingdom. And he'll use this terminology, but then all of a sudden Isaiah will take this turn. And he will talk about a king who is so great, who will be called mighty God, and he will bring everlasting peace, a peace that will continue through all the generations and how he will reign on the throne of David forever. And you're thinking, well, this can't be any earthly king. I mean, this can't just be this Hezekiah who's coming. This has got to be someone more. This has got to be God. That's what Joel's doing here. Joel's saying, you you know this locust plague that's about to happen. It's going to be terrible. You're going to talk about it. You need to repent. Oh, but there's a coming destruction. There's a coming judgment. There is a coming day of the Lord that is the ultimate day of the Lord, the ultimate judgment. And this judgment, this locust plague that you're experiencing, that you're about to experience, it's going to look like an ant farm. That Hurricane Ida that just hit Louisiana, I mean, that's going to look like a little drizzle compared to the ultimate judgment, the ultimate day of the Lord that's coming when God fully and finally vanquishes sin and Satan forever. And so what is the response to that? Joel is saying, people, you got to wake up and repent that this is happening. You insensitive people, you people who are insensitive to sin, you must wake up and repent. Why? Because these people are just going through life. They're just carefree, like nothing's going to happen. Oh, yeah, oh, well, you deal with this, whatever, it's all right. Wake up and repent. This is the message of Joel. And so the question is, well, what would Joel's message be to us today? I mean, if the prophet were here today and he were speaking to our church today, what would he say? Would he find a church that's consumed with lust and greed and selfishness and pride? 
and really kind of insensitive to it. People who make excuses and say, well, you know, this is just who I am. This is just what I struggle with. When you find people who divorce for unbiblical reasons and just, well, you know, that's just how life goes sometimes. We all have our vices. We all have our struggles. You know, that's just how it is. Would he find a people who in their hearts are insensitive to the sin that they've committed and to the sin around them, a spiritually insensitive people? Because if he would, the message would be exactly the same. He would say to the church, he would say to the nation, he would say to us, wake up and repent. This is the heart of Joel. And as he does this, as he calls the people to wake up and to repent, to stop being spiritually insensitive people, he paints this vivid imagery of what it looks like, of what true repentance really looks like. And so he uses this image of, he says, you should mourn like a virgin who just lost her fiance before her wedding day. And in those days, I mean, the, the way that a wedding worked in those days is you would, you would be engaged and then the groom, he would go away and he would prepare a home, he'd get everything ready, and he would take a year in this preparation phase. And for that year, that bride, she's just so excited. She's counting down the days until he's going to come and he's going to collect her and they're going to go to their place. And, and there's just this excitement. There's this anticipation that's building. You're dreaming about what life is going to be like and the kids that you're going to have and, and all of this stuff. There, it's just such an exciting time and what this celebration is going to look like. And then you get the news that day's never happening. That, that, that this man that you've been waiting for, tragically, he's been killed. There's no more counting down the days. The anticipation is over. The dreams have died. And you can imagine how she is mourning. You can imagine how she is feeling. And Joel says, when you wake up to the gravity of your sin, you would mourn like that. That this is what mourning ought to look like. He goes on to say, he says, rend your hearts and not your garments. In the Middle East, uh, in those days especially, grief was a very public thing. I mean, people expressed grief in just very demonstrative, very bold acts. Even today, if you were to watch some funeral about a tragic death that took place in the Middle East, I mean, you would hear people screaming and wailing, and you'd see people just kind of tearing at their clothes, trying to show just how badly they are hurting. Have you ever talked with someone? Have you ever seen someone try to rend their clothes in grief, just tear at their clothes because they're hurting so bad? You know, I talked with a police chaplain who knocked on the door along with a police officer and had to dr deliver the tragic news that uh, this mom and dad, they had lost their daughter to a drunk driver. And as he delivers this news, he, he can see it in their eyes at first as they're just trying to process. They're just trying to make sense of this news that they've just heard, trying to make sense of it all. And then as it begins to click in, as they begin to know that this is really what's happened, that their baby girl who they adore more than life itself is not coming home again. Well, then they begin, there's usually a gasp, and then they're wailing and screaming and crying. And as he describes this scene, he said that they, they started to pull at their clothes. They're hurting so 
bad. They're just trying to express how much they're hurting and they're tearing at their clothes as if somehow ripping their clothes apart could just tear the hurt away from them just a little bit. And Joel's writing, and he's saying, if you understood the gravity of your sin, it's not your clothes you'd be tearing out. You'd be reaching into your heart And you'd be trying to tear it to shreds because you know the consequence of your sin. You know how sin devastates families and how sin devastates communities and how sin devastates nations. And you would reach inside yourself and you would rend not your garments, you would rend your hearts to express your sorrow for your sin. And Joel says, if you do that, then perhaps... Just perhaps God will relent. Perhaps he will take pity on his people. <laughs> and then he turns and he, and he moves and he calls this collective to this collective repentance. That you as a nation, if you will rend your hearts, if you will repent like this, you'll be able to move past judgment to a place of blessing. And so Joel ends his prophecy on this note of hope that we're called to come together repenting, yes, so that we can be a people of hope. And the images that he will paint of hope, oh, they're striking, but we'll get to those next week. You won't want to miss it. Heavenly Father, we thank you that as we look over our lives, when we have a clearer idea of just how devastating our sin is, of the judgment that it deserves, not just locust plagues, oh, that's like an ant farm compared to the judgment that it deserves. But when we truly understand that, God cause us to repent so that we can move past judgment to a place of blessing and we can come together to be a people of hope. We can't do that by ourselves. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.